So if you have a Bible with you today, open up to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, and we'll be digging into the first three verses today of this uh, special chapter, the chapter 14 of John. It's uh, such an encouraging uh, chapter for us, and the name of the title of the sermon today is Being Delivered from a Troubled Heart, Being Delivered from a Troubled Heart, John chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 1, 2, and 3. Here's what the apostle John writes. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the encouraging time we've had together already to sing songs about your greatness and your majesty, to be reminded of the gospel truth that Jesus came, that he died, that he was raised from the dead, that we can have newness of life. And as we look at this passage this morning about how we can be delivered from a troubled heart, I pray that you would meet us wherever we are, whether we're having a great week or a difficult week, whether things couldn't get any better or we're at the end of our rope. We need Christ. We ask that Jesus would reveal himself to us through your word today in a way that would change us forever. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Depression is a dark and a difficult thing. Depression is a form of suffering that cannot be reduced to one universal cause. Those who struggle with depression say that it feels like meaningless pain. One depressed person described their experience this way. I felt like I was walking through a field of dead flowers and found one beautiful rose. But when I bent down to smell it, I fell into an invisible hole. Another depressed person said, my heart is empty. All the fountains that should run with longing and desire have dried up in me. Depression has been described as a complete absence, absence of affect, absence of feeling, absence of response, absence of interest, and an absence of all pleasure. The mental pain seems unbearable. Time stands still, I can't go on, said a 12-year-old girl. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher who has been known to deal with bouts of depression in his life said, quote, I could weep by the hour like a child and yet I knew not what I wept for. Abraham Lincoln also struggled with depression. He wrote, quote, I am now the most miserable man living If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human race, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forbade I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better. Well, maybe you've never been depressed, but surely you've been disappointed. Disappointment is different than depression. Disappointment is sadness or displeasure caused by unfulfilled hopes and unmet expectations. Disappointment is the feeling of dissatisfaction or failure at an unexpected outcome. Disappointment can come with a certain finality, the realization that you don't have and that you didn't get or you will never achieve whatever it is that you wanted. Disappointment forces you to admit that you did not get what you wish to have, which either results in you getting angry at yourself or others, or it results in sadness, which lingers and tends to keep your spirits down. Now, whether you've struggled with depression this morning or whether you're just simply disappointed today, these two realities are connected with the idea of having a troubled heart. But I have some good news for you this morning. You've had any amount of depression, any amount of disappointment or difficulty, the good news for you today is that you can be delivered from 
a troubled heart. The important thing is that you realize that there is only one way out, and that is Jesus. There is no drug. There is no medication. There is no amount of alcohol. There is no amount of money. There is no hobby that can cure you like Jesus does. Oftentimes, it comes down to a choice, choosing to come to Christ, choosing to set your minds on his word, choosing to trust in Jesus no matter what. It's choosing to pray in the midst of all that you face, choosing to set your thoughts on those things which are true and right, and choosing to believe that God always is in control and he's working in and through each situation for his glory and for your good. God reminds us in his word that peace in the midst of our trouble doesn't just come naturally to the depressed or the disappointed. He tells us to seek peace and pursue it, Psalm 34, 14. Now, some may offer their own advice, get away for a few days, relax, be happy, take a vacation, tune it out, just don't think about all that stressful stuff. But that's only a temporary relief in a crazy, struggling world. These are only vain attempts to cover up desperate places in our souls with superficial external fixes. But the, the deliverance of God that he offers to the troubled heart is vastly different. It's lasting. It's powerful. It's real, breathing deep reassurance in the midst of all that we face past, present, or future. It's rising up against the fear that would seek to choke out our lives. It brings us comfort and freedom. And God's word gives strength, and it gives purpose, and it gives grace. And the scriptures alone are where we can go to, to find inner calm in a whirlwind of crazy. And so let me ask you this morning, are you in need of being delivered from depression or from disappointment? If so, let me offer you three encouragements today that will deliver you from a troubled heart. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this passage, quote, the best and most comforting sermon that the Lord Christ delivered on earth, a treasure and a jewel not to be purchased with the world's goods, close quote. These verses become the foundation of comfort, not only for these disciples, but also for us. And if you ever get to the point in your life where you think that you've run out of escapes and there aren't any more places that you can rest, you'll find a tremendously soft, downy pillow here in John 14, 1 through 3. The first encouragement I want to give you today to help teach you and show you how you can be delivered from a troubled heart. You see it there in your outline is have belief in a person and his name is Jesus. This is Jesus speaking in John 14, 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, as we finished John 13 last week, we saw how Jesus prepared his disciples for his departure, and he told them in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Jesus has been telling them, hey, I'm going somewhere, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And in verse 36, we read how Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter then shows that he is a little frustrated that he can't follow Jesus right now. Peter doesn't want to be left on this earth without Jesus. Peter wants to do whatever it takes to stay by Jesus' side. So Peter says in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Peter reveals that he's just a little bit irritated that Jesus is saying that he can't come with him now, just like your kids may become impatient with you if you're about to go on a trip and you tell them they can't come with you right now. And I would say it's a beautiful thing for Peter to want to be with Jesus. But it's also a beautiful thing for Peter to be patient and to trust in the Lord and to follow in Christ's way and in his plan. 
And so in verse 38 of chapter 13, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about the sin of presumption. Don't really know what you're going to do in the midst of heartache and pain and turmoil. And we have to trust the Lord and follow him and listen to his word. And so needless to say, these disciples are discouraged. And so your blank here, if you haven't already filled it in, is do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled because Jesus now, in the midst of this discouragement, the disciples have just been told that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And now Peter is going to deny him three times. And so the disciples are completely bewildered and demoralized. And Jesus had said that he was going away, that he would die, that one of the 12 is a traitor, that Peter's going to deny him, that Satan is at work against all of them, that all the disciples would fall away. And it is understandable that the disciples have troubled hearts. The cumulative weight of these revelations must have greatly depressed them. And so the word troubled here, where Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, the word troubled means to be agitated. It means to cause inward turmoil. It means to stir up. And we've already seen how Jesus himself was greatly troubled on two occasions. One was when he saw Mary weeping when Lazarus had died in John eleven thirty three, 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is an emotion that is common to all mankind, including the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the other time we see Jesus troubled was in John 13, 21, which says after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so what we're seeing here in the Bible is it is not a sin to be troubled. It is not a sin to be disappointed. But if you stay in that state and begin to get angry and bitter, or to be in complete despair and to lose all hope, that is a sin. So Jesus is not telling his disciples to not become troubled, for they already were. But the verb tense here in the original language emphasizes that they are to stop being troubled. In other words, they already are troubled, and he's telling them, don't be that way anymore. If you think that being troubled is only an emotion that you can't control, therefore you're not responsible for it, then think again. Because in this moment, Jesus is saying, hey, I get it. You're troubled, but you can't stay there. Don't stay in that place because it's going to lead to something worse. Oftentimes, disappointment does lead to depression. And when you keep meditating on all your problems and everything that's going wrong in your life, it will lead you to a dark place. And so in this moment of just simply being troubled, Jesus is saying, hey, let's just stop it right there. Right there. Let's stop that and let's turn our thinking to something better. Being troubled is a choice that you make when you're responding to any given situation. And in that moment, you have a choice to either trust in the Lord with all your heart or you have the choice to lean on your own understanding. If you lean on your own understanding, then you will likely become troubled to the point where it will become sinful and you'll stay in a dark hole. But if you trust in the Lord with all your heart, then he will direct your path and he will lead you out of mourning into dancing again. That's what Christ does. He does not desire for you to stay in a dark place. And so let me ask you this morning, what is it today that your heart is troubled about? Could it be a health concern? For yourself or one of your children? Could it be that you're being threatened to be let go at work? Could it be that your finances are in turmoil? Is it your marriage? Whatever ails you today, let me remind you that we have a tendency to borrow trouble and to imagine things as worse than they really are. We are often too quick to become anxious and worried about the smallest things. We need to heed Christ's words here and to stop being troubled. God is a, a God who gives you power over your troubles, and God gives you power over your emotions, and God gives you the power to stop being agitated and to replace that trouble, that worry, that agitation with something else. And Jesus is telling us what that is here in this verse. Jesus is, by the way, the wonderful counselor. And what Jesus is doing in these three verses is he's telling us how to put off troubled thoughts 
and to put on something better in its place. Jesus was the first counselor, not Jay Adams. All right? So Jesus here is reminding us, no, 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 stop doing this and start believing in God. And that's what God's telling us today through this passage. Start, let, stop letting your hearts be troubled and rather believe in a person and his name is Jesus. Now, as we're looking at this first heading about believing in a person, not only are we to stop being troubled, but that second blank you got there, if you're taking notes this morning, says this, believe in God and in his word. Notice Jesus says, believe in God. And there's some discussion here to whether believe in God and believe also in me should be seen as the indicative, which is a verb tense indicating a statement of fact, or in the imperative, which is obviously a command. I take both of these as imperatives. I believe that Jesus is kindly and directly helping deliver the disciples from their troubled hearts by telling them that they need to believe in God and that they need to believe in Christ. He, he commands it. You're having trouble? Believe in God is what Jesus says. First thing he says, believe in him. And, and when a, a sinner believes in Christ, a sinner in that moment has peace with God. It's the first uh, first benefit of being a believer is all of a sudden God gives you this incredible peace that floods your soul. It's Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the peace of God that not only saves your soul from hell, but also when we have peace with God, that peace lasts throughout our whole life. He gives us peace in the midst of our troubled times. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, is one of the most comforting places in Scripture that I try to meditate on when my heart is troubled, which simply says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with your requests, let your requests be made known to God and the, what? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding. I don't even understand why, but I'm, I'm all of a sudden experiencing God's perfect peace in the midst of my heartache and my pain as my heart and my mind are set on Christ Jesus. And let me just remind you this morning, there's nothing too big or too small for you to carry it to God in prayer. And as we are making our requests known to God, we are also thanking him for his provision through Christ. We are thanking him for the wisdom that he provides. And we're thanking him for his sufficient word. And we're thanking him for the peace that he gives. And all of this guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Unsaved people enjoy peace when there is an absence of trouble. But Christians enjoy peace in the midst of their trouble because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In the world, peace is something you hope for and that you work for. But to the Christian, peace is God's wonderful gift received by faith. And throughout the Old Testament, we see time and time again the exhortation to believe in God and to trust in Him. Consider Psalm 25, 1 through 2. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Psalm 34, or excuse me, 31, 14. But I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in in you. I love Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Well, are you experiencing the great peace that God provides? Could the problem be that you don't actually believe in God? That you don't believe that he has you in his hands and that his word is sufficient for all that we need and for life and godliness? I mean, if, if you do believe in God, then we are to be living according to his word. And when we live according to his word, we can believe all the promises that God gives us so that even in the midst of chaos and turmoil, you're like, you know what, I believe in God. He's at work in this. I mean, I, I don't know if you know this, but if there is a raging storm on the sea with intense 50-foot waves or 50 to 100-mile-an-hour winds, if there is thunder and lightning in the midst of a, a thunderstorm or a tropical storm or even a great hurricane, did you know that if you go down below the surface of the water, 
about 200 feet, it's completely quiet and calm. That on the surface, all hell's breaking loose. But when you go down deep to where the Lord is in his word, if, if you live life on the surface, then you're going to be overcome with your problems and your fears. But when you have an anchor for the soul in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word, believing in God with all of your heart, you can find great peace that he offers to you in Christ. And so this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's like, hey guys, don't be troubled. And he's telling us the same message today. Don't be troubled. Believe in God. And then Jesus also says here, just as quick as he says, believe in God, believe also in me. So your next blank there says, believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, many people in Israel believe in God. Uh, many people today say they believe in God. Lots of people say, oh, I'm spiritual. I have faith. I believe there's a God. But that doesn't cut it. And so Christ is saying, hey, that's great. You believe in God, but you've got to believe also in me. And even if you've never seen God, you can see the revelation of God in the person of Christ. And so the, the Old Testament and the New Testament kind of connect at the person of Jesus Christ, as we're told in Hebrews eleven twenty seven says that Moses, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses, in a sense, was looking to Christ. Earlier in Hebrews eleven thirteen, we're told that these all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. All of these Old Testament saints believed in God, though they had never seen him. They believed in the promised Messiah, though they had never seen Jesus. And now Jesus is here in the flesh right before their eyes. The greatest revelation of God is the fact that God became a man and walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 17, For truly, truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is saying that for centuries, prophets and righteous people longed to see the Messiah, and they never did. And Jesus is now saying that those who were there in his presence were blessed to see him and to hear him and to fear him and to walk with him. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things of which angels have longed to look. This is all he's saying. He's saying, look, people have been looking for Christ all along, and God revealed the concept of Christ and the person of Christ in some miraculous divine revelation to each and every believer of the Old Testament. They were not saved by bulls or goats or by the sacrifice of any other animal. They're only saved by looking ahead to Christ. And now that Christ is here, we can look back on Christ and say, you know what, that same Christ that saved every Old Testament saint is the same Christ that saves every person in the world who would believe in him and repent of their sins, and to trust in him, and to believe that he really did what he said he would do. I mean, listen to me this morning. Jesus is and was a real person. This is not science fiction. Jesus is not an Avenger. This is not Iron Man or Captain America. Thank God, right? Jesus is so much greater, right? This is, Jesus is so much more. This is not some fairy tale, this is not Jesus as being some knight in shining armor. He is so much more. This is not some made-up story. This is the real thing. And Jesus said here, notice in verse 1, he didn't say, believe about me or believe around me or believe upon me like once upon a time story tell. No, Jesus said, believe in me. You have to believe in Jesus, that he is the Holy One of God 
that he was born to the Virgin Mary, that he was God in the flesh, that he did live a perfect life, that he never sinned, that he died on a cross to pay for your sins, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, that he ascended into heaven, that he ever lives to intercede for you, and that he's returning one day for his own. So do you believe in this Jesus? Because that's the only Jesus that will save you. Not some made-up Jesus. Not some made-up God. Not some made-up haphazard religion. Right? There's no other way except Christ. There's, no other, there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. Acts 4.12. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can help you with your troubled heart this morning. Not money, not wealth, not a new house, not a new car, not a new look, not a new relationship, not a new baby, not a new job, not a new makeover. You need a new heart. And that's what Christ gives. Your heart's troubled this morning. You can replace that with a new heart, a new heart in Christ. The God of heaven loves you. Jesus is the great physician of the soul. He is the good shepherd. He is, the God, he is God in the flesh who cares for you, and he feels your pain, and he knows your heartache. Hebrews 4.15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Are you weak today? Are you brokenhearted today? Are you stuck in your sin today? Are you down and out? Come to Jesus today confident that he will allow you to enter into his presence by the blood that he shed. Come to Jesus today and receive the mercy of our Lord. Come to Jesus today and find the grace that he gives to help you in your time of need. I know it sounds so trite, the answer is Jesus, but that's the answer to everything that you could ever Think about, Jesus is the answer, and that's what this verse is telling us. And if you're troubled today, if you have disappointment today, if you struggle with depression today, come to Christ. Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. So the first encouragement that will deliver your troubled heart is to believe in a person, Jesus Christ. Let me give you a second encouragement that I believe we find in this passage in verse 2. Have hope in a place, and that place is heaven. In your next blank there, let's give a description of heaven. Let's give a little description here of heaven. When Jesus says, in my Father's house, he says, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And so when he says, my Father's house here, he's referring to heaven. It is noteworthy that the Lord Jesus is the only one who would ever make reference to the Father's house. And he did so on three occasions. First, he said of the temple in Jerusalem where the money changers were buying and selling animals for the sacrifice, he says this, John 2.16, he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away, do not make my Father's house a house of trade. And in that passage, Jesus is saying that the Father's house, it's presented as the place of God's dwelling. The second place we see a Father's house mentioned is in the form of the parable of the prodigal son when we read in Luke 15, 25, now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And here the Father's house is presented as a place of rejoicing and a place of celebration. The third reference to the Father's house is the one we're looking at here in John 14, and the reference here is that of a final dwelling place for all believers. The glories and blessedness of heaven are brought before us in the New Testament 
under a variety of descriptions. As we just think about heaven and its all-encompassing description throughout the New Testament. Heaven is called a country in Luke 19 and in Hebrews 11. This tells of its vastness. Heaven is called a city in Hebrews 11 and in Revelation 21. This tells of its large number of inhabitants. Heaven is described as a kingdom in 2 Timothy 4 and 2 Peter 1. And this tells us of its orderliness. It is called paradise in Luke 23 and in Revelation 2. And this tells us of its delights. Heaven is referred to as a place of unending rest, Hebrews 4. A place of immaculate beauty, Revelation 21. And a place that is too good even to imagine 1 Corinthians 2. I don't know about you, but I want to go there. It sounds like a pretty good place. The Father's house has been a favorite term for many Christians because this points to the Christian's final dwelling place. We are told that while we are pilgrims on earth, we are sojourners, we are aliens on this planet because this world is not our home. The Father's house is. The Father's house represents a place that we can finally call home. There will be no leaving that place. Once you arrive at the Father's house, you're there for good. There will be no aging of that house. There is no insurance required. There is no monthly mortgage payment to pay. There are no electricity bills. There is no escrow. There are no taxes. There is no depreciation of heaven forever. You want to go there? It's a great place, right? The ESV says, in my Father's house are many rooms. The King James Version says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Now, this King James translation, many mansions, has led to a whole host of gospel music songs, which I kind of grew up on a little bit. I got a mansion just over the hilltop, right? I'm not going to sing it for you. My wife's like, please, stop right there. You but it leads to a lot of these concepts of I got a home in glory and I've got a mansion and all this stuff. And I'm not saying that that's all completely incorrect. It is true the Father's house has many rooms, but it is never actually described as a mansion. I'm not saying it's not a mansion. I'm just saying that the emphasis of this original word in the Greek language is the state of remaining in an area. The word depicts staying, tarrying, and dwelling. And this is why the NASB, New American Standard, translates it as many rooms. Many rooms, it translates that as many dwelling places to kind of add that idea. It's not just a room that's uninhabited, but it's a room that you will dwell in forever. There's a permanency of dwelling in our new home. And in Hebrew culture, to add an extra room to the house would be what you would do as the family would grow so that you could all gather together. Multiple generations were welcome to live together. John MacArthur says, quote, the dwelling places of which the Lord spoke must not be pictured as separate buildings as if heaven were a giant housing tract. The picture is rather of a father's building adding additional rooms onto his house for his sons and their families as was often done in Israel. The Father's house represents a place that we all belong. That is, if you are in Christ. And let me tell you something, heaven is not overbooked and it is not understaffed. Heaven is not a place of boredom, but it's not necessarily a place that we go to play football. Come and go with me to my Father's house. I'll stop, right? Some of you older Christians remember that song, right? So the focus of heaven isn't that of a family reunion or a place to look for lost friends. Heaven is a place to worship Jesus Christ. Heaven is a place to serve the Lord. Heaven is a place to rejoice in all that Jesus has done and all that he has overcome. And because Jesus has overcome, we are now citizens in a heavenly kingdom. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We may have many boundaries down here, different countries, different cultures, different languages, but in heaven we will all speak the language of the King. We will all be united in our worship. Revelation 5.9 says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy 
are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so heaven is going to be a wonderful place where there are no more tears, where there is no more pain, where the Bible says there's no more sorrow. And if you're in Christ this morning, it is a place that you will call home forever. And so part of what I'm saying to you this morning is if you've got a troubled heart, you need to be meditating on heaven. You need to be thinking about what the Bible says about heaven. You need to be thinking about a person, Jesus Christ, but this person talks to us about heaven. And not only do we see a description of heaven here, but we also see in your next blank the preparation for heaven. The preparation of heaven. Notice the second part of verse 2 says, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Question, what does Jesus mean when he says that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, I want you to listen closely here because for the most of my life until this very week, I thought that this passage was talking about Jesus being the heavenly decorator, the master of interior design, picking the right colors and the right fabric and the right fixtures all needed to make heaven absolutely exquisite. Maybe heaven is HGTV on steroids. <laughs> Admittedly, I would think from time to time, well, why would Jesus say that it would take him any amount of time to go prepare heaven for the future? Couldn't Jesus just speak it into existence? I know that Jesus is a carpenter, but is he still building something in heaven? I mean, is, heavy, is, is heaven messy now? Is it under construction does Jesus need to clean up a few rooms or build a few extra before we get there? What about all the people who've already died and gone to heaven? Did they show up to heaven with it only being half finished? Did they have to wear a hard hat in a construction zone? Or even worse, were they also responsible of the heavenly chores of cleaning up and tidying up before the rest of us get there? I mean, what are we to think of this verse? I go and prepare a place for you. Well, D.A. Carson, well-known theologian, was helpful in my thinking on this as I was reading his commentary this week. He writes this, quote, It is not that Jesus arrives on the scene and then begins to prepare the place. Rather, in the context of John's theology, it is the going itself via the cross and resurrection that prepares the place for Jesus' disciples, close quote. In other words, Jesus doesn't go to heaven to make preparations for you. He goes to the cross to prepare the way for you. And in the original language, it doesn't say, please note in your version, it does not say he goes there to prepare a place for you. It says, I go and prepare a place for you. And so that going is to the cross. That going is the way of preparation to lead you into heaven, which let me assure you is completely finished and ready for you right now. A.W. Pink agrees. He writes this, quote, It means that the Lord Jesus has procured the right by his death on the cross for every believing sinner to enter heaven. He has prepared for us a place there by entering heaven as our representative and taking possession of it on behalf of his people. As our forerunner, he marched in leading captivity captive and there planted his banner in the land of glory. He has prepared for us a place by entering the holy of holies on high as our great high priest, carrying our names with him. Christ will do all that was necessary to secure for his people a welcome and permanent place in heaven. God has never and will never take his people to an unprepared place. In Eden, God first planted the garden, and then he placed Adam in it. In Canaan, God first prepared the cities and the houses, and then he placed Israel into the promised land. To give you a better sense of this, consider Deuteronomy 6, and when this is before they entered into the promised land and 
Moses is speaking and he's telling them, hey, he's already got a place prepared for you in the promised land. Here's how Moses describes that reality. He says, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that take years and years to grow and mature to bear fruit, that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God. You shall fear him. You shall serve. Do you think that it will be any different in heaven? Christ prepares the way for you. It's already prepared. You don't, you don't get there and do anything other than worship the Lamb. And obviously, there's lots of questions about what will we do day for day. Please don't have the picture of, you know, having a pair of wings on your back and playing the harp in, in, in a diaper or something like that, all right? I mean, the idea, as, as Randy Alcorn and so many others have helped us think through possibilities that we could explore of what heaven may be like, we just still don't really know. I love The Glories of Heaven by MacArthur. I mentioned the book by Alcorn. There's lots of great resources on heaven that are always encouraging. And, and it's a shame to me that people only usually read those when they get diagnosed with terminal cancer. Now, we should be reading those books like today. Like, I can't wait for heaven. Or you hear a story about, well, there's some kid that was asking questions about heaven. And the next thing you know, that kid went, and went there. So I'm not going to read those books or talk to my kids about heaven. That's a more of a thought, I know, but you know, you know what I'm saying. It's like this idea of like we should be preparing like right now and thinking about the glorious beauties of heaven and the fact that Jesus has gone before us. It's already all prepared. I mean, this idea of it being finished, I think, can also be found in 2 Corinthians 5.1, that that house has already been built. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And while in that context, Paul is primarily talking about our glorified bodies, I believe he's also referring here to a glorified home in heaven, and it's given as if it's already completed place that we go. So Jesus went to the cross to prepare redemption for us. He went to be raised from the dead and prepare a new life for us. He went into heaven to prepare access into the presence of God for us. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So let me tell you something this morning. Heaven, it's a city, it's a country, it's a place that God has prepared, and it is worth any price to enter. Jesus was crucified to gain access on your behalf, and this means in one sense, heaven is free for you. But in another sense, it costs you everything. Jesus said in the parable of Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So no matter what a person has to sacrifice, it could be your pride, your possessions, your place in this world. You are a fool if you don't give up everything you have to enter into the heavenly city of God. The question is not, is Jesus finished making his preparations? The question is, have you made yours? Are you prepared to die? Do you have oil in your lamp? Will you be ready when the bridegroom comes? So how can you be delivered from a troubled heart? Believe in the person of Jesus, have a secure hope in the reality of heaven, and then last, have faith in a promise. And here I believe Jesus is talking about the rapture in verse three. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Your next blank says Jesus will do what he has said he will do. Jesus has already said in verse 2, if, we are, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, Jesus is saying that I am going to do what I have told you that I would do. And Jesus will do exactly what he has said he will do. Jesus will not 
entrust this task to a prophet. Jesus will not delegate this task to an angel. This is something that only Jesus can do because he is faithful and he is true. And Jesus is speaking the truth. Jesus cannot tell a lie. Jesus cannot be stopped. Jesus cannot go against scripture. Jesus is true to his word. He is true to his promises and he is completely trustworthy. I heard a story about a father who dropped off his little boy at a street corner and told him that he would be back in 20 minutes after taking care of some business. The father's car broke down and he wasn't able to get back to his son for four or five hours. The son waited on the corner by a store that whole time and the panicky father had no way of phoning him. He didn't get back until 11 o'clock at night. And the boy was rocking back and forth on the sidewalk, whistling his favorite tune. The father pulled up to the curb, hugged his son, and said he was so sorry. The boy replied, what are you sorry about? You said you were coming. Well, that's the kind of trust we need to put into the Lord, right? He said he's coming back. Don't be impatient. Don't think that that life until he returns has to be all hell breaking loose. You could be whistling your favorite tune of the graces and the goodness of our Lord as you wait patiently for his return, and we don't know that day or that hour, right? Jesus could come at any moment, right? And here's the last blank there. Jesus will come again and take you to himself. Notice again, the end of verse three, I will come and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, when Jesus says, I will come again and take you to himself, I believe that he's talking about the rapture. The absence of any type of judgment in these verses is one indication that Jesus is not referring to the second coming, but to the rapture. At the second coming, Jesus will descend to earth and his feet according to Zechariah 14, will touch down on the Mount of Olives and he will judge unbelieving Jews and Gentiles alike and he will fight at the battle of Armageddon. But at the rapture, Jesus doesn't come all the way to the earth, but rather takes true Christians up from earth when we meet him in the air. And Jesus then rewards believers at the Bema seat and he takes believers into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And these are two very different events that are separated by a period of seven years called the Great Tribulation. Jesus said in Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So believers of the church age who have been faithful will be kept from the hour of trial, which is referring again, I believe, to the tribulation. Instead, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and will sound the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This is a rapture passage confirming that believers will be caught up with Jesus in the air because again this is a rapture. Jesus doesn't come all the way down to earth. That happens at the second coming. We also read in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead raised, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, whether your view of eschatology is different or not, I just want to make sure you understand that no man knows the day or the hour where this will happen, and that's why we always need to be ready. Any day, Jesus could come back, and at any moment, Jesus could return, and at any second, he could take us up to be with himself, and you don't have to Uber up, right? You don't have to work your way up 
but we should all be looking up with a sense that that expectation that Jesus will keep his promises. Now the world will laugh. You go to some ball game and you say Jesus is coming back, and I'm not saying you should hold the poster, turn or burn, all right? But when we see that, we tend to mock at that. I mean, even Christians were like, it kind of makes us feel uncomfortable. But it's true, right? Jesus could come back at any moment. And if you're a Christian, you have to believe that because it's what Jesus says. And the world will laugh and scoff at this, just like they did at Noah while he was building the ark before the flood. The world will laugh and scoff at this, just like they did at Moses when he came out of the desert and he said to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. The world will laugh and scoff at this, just as they did at John the Baptist who said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus is coming. He's coming back, and he may come in your lifetime, and he may come a thousand years from now, but we can all be encouraged that whether we are dead or alive, he will take us to himself. If we belong to him, then we are his, and he will claim us as his own, and he will rescue us as his own, and he will rapture us as his own, and when we are with him, we will always be with the Lord, never to be separated from his presence again. That longing and frustration that Peter expressed that he wanted to be with the Lord right now is something that Peter or you and I will never experience again once Jesus comes and takes us to where he dwells. This, my friends, should comfort you greatly today. This should bring you peace for your troubled heart today. This, my friends, should deliver you from your heartache and your pain. Jesus said in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This is what Jesus is praying for. He wants you in his presence in heaven forever. This is something that Jesus is praying for. It's something that you and I should also be praying for and looking for and expecting. And so if you're here today and your heart is troubled, look nowhere else but unto Jesus who gives eternal life. Turn from your sin and your sorrow today and repent of your worries and your fears and look to Christ today and confess your sins today and believe upon him today with all your heart. Put your hope in Christ who has prepared a place for you by dying in your place so that you don't have to and then live every day of your life trusting in the Lord to meet your every need. Have faith in the promises that Jesus has made to come again to take you to himself. And praise the Lord that it's Jesus who said, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart for I have overcome the world. Would you come to him today and let him heal your troubled heart? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to be encouraged by the truth of your word. And God, I admit and confess it is much easier said than done. And there are many maybe here today, they're in the midst of such trouble and turmoil that their hearts have been overcome with grief. And yet, God, we want to gently and passionately remind them of the beauty of heaven, the joy of heaven, that that only is offered to those who believe in the person who came from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, God, I pray that you would open minds and open hearts and that you would give us a reason to dance and to celebrate because if we're in Christ, we've been forgiven and this world's not our home and the place where we're going is already prepared and I just can't wait to get there. And so in the meantime, God, let us be faithful ambassadors. Let us be faithful witnesses for Christ. Let us be faithful in our country and in our community to uphold the words of love and peace and grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And be glorified in our midst today that we would love you and anticipate your return and that we would be ready when you come back for your own. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.